0: Hello and welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 150. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Valentine's Day is coming up, and so this week we explore love, relationships, and other means of cootie exchange. But first, an update on the 2009 Drabblecast People's Choice Awards. We're moving into round two, folks. You've narrowed down your top five favorite drabbles and top five favorite feature stories. And for the next two weeks, we'll have polls set up in our discussion forums where you can go and vote for your favorite. The winner of Best Story receives the sacred drabblecast Chalice of Glory. The winner of Best Drabble gets a pretty cool plaque. Our finalists are, for Best 100-Word Drabble Story, Drabblecast 138, Absent-Minded Professor by Peter Ricor, Drabblecast 147, Time Machine by Christopher K. Monroe, Drabblecast 146, Homeostasis by Phenopath, Drabblecast 115, The Absurdly Connected Machine by J. Allen Pierce, and Drabblecast 114, Happy Ending by Michael Young. And for Best Story, we have Episode 115, Clown Eggs by Jay Lake, Episode 146, Teddy Bears and Tea Parties by S. Boyd Taylor. Episode 139, Let Us Now Praise Awesome Dinosaurs by Leonard Richardson. Episode 109, Babel Probe by David D. Levine. And episode 129, Annabelle's Alphabet by Tim Pratt. Yikes. A hard choice. All very different, but very kick-ass stories. So there you go. Get over to our forums and vote. We'll announce the winner two weeks from now in our next trifecta special, number 11. So, love. You know, there's an old Fremen proverb that says, Four things cannot be hidden. Love, smoke, a pillar of fire, and a man striding across the open, bleeding. Wait, that actually, that might have been meatloaf. Either way, it doesn't really matter. I think they're onto something here. Love really isn't that complex. Situations are complex. So for this Valentine's Day, we're not siding with those who are bitter or those who are disgustingly enamored. We're focusing on situations, fluxing and multifarious, the things that make love more complex than it has to be. And on that note, it's time for a 100-word story. This week's Drabble is called Breakup, and it comes to us from Jay Allen Pierce. Jay lives in Portland, Oregon, and he's been published in Kaleidotrope, Bards and Sages, Idiomancer, Fear and Trembling magazine, and he's had several stories and Drabbles here on the Drabblecast. We can't see each other anymore, James. Your doctor said it's not a good idea. He's my psychiatrist, Angie, not a couples counselor. He doesn't know us. I just want what's best for you, she said, turning. I love you. Blinking back tears, James reached into a front pocket for his recently prescribed medication. Say things were different, and these pills made me disappear instead. Would you take them? he asked. Turning back around, he saw her bottom lip quiver slightly. Betraying a phony attempt at fortitude, she rested her head on his shoulder. Didn't think so, he said, tossing the pills into the trash. Who says that your psychotic delusions can't be charming, lovely individuals? Our feature story this week is called Morris and the Machine by Tim Pratt. Tim lives in Oakland, California with his wife, Heather Shaw, and their son, River. His fiction and poetry have appeared in the Best American Short Stories 2005, The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, Strange Horizons, Realms of Fantasy, Asimov's, and The Year's Best Fantasy, among many others, including semi-frequently here on the Drabblecast. As you might have heard earlier, his story Annabelle's Alphabet is in the running for 2009 Drabblecast People's Choice Award. Quite a writer, that guy. Joining me in the narration, the lovely Monica Vasey, harpist, music educator, and occasional voice on the podcast, sparing you all from Norm's girl voice in stories that have male-female dialogue. You can get in touch and thank her for that at MonicaVasey.com. So, without further ado, Morris and the Machine, by Tim Pratt. Penelope, once my pretty penny, my penny for your thoughts, now my penny dreadful, my penny pincher, sat waiting for me in the kitchen. She dragged the battered kitchen table across the floor so it blocked the way to my workshop, and she sat at the table, the back of her chair pressed against the basement door. There was no getting past her. I thought about turning, walking back out, trying to crawl into the basement through one of the little windows at ground level, but even if I could squeeze my way in, it would just delay the inevitable. Penny had changed a lot over the years, but she was still persistent. I put the little bag of solder and washers down by the sink then turned to face Penny with a forced smile. Hi, darling, I said. How was work? She didn't answer. A cigarette burned in her right hand, and she tapped the fingernail of her left hand on a pile of ripped-open envelopes. Her eyes, even narrowed, were still the deep blue of Pacific waters seen undersea beyond the reefs. But where once those eyes had made me think of limitless possibilities, now they made me think of sharks.
1: I've been thinking about leaving you, Morris,
0: Penny said her once-melodious voice roughened by years of smoke and alcohol. Penny insists she doesn't have a drinking problem. She has a husband problem, and drinking is one form of treatment. She'd been a wild, impulsive girl once, who drank for fun, but over the years the fun had decreased while the drinking hadn't. Penny, I began, because I knew what at least one of those envelopes was, and talking my way out of this would be hard.
1: Do you know why I've been thinking about leaving you?
0: Her fingernail tapping became louder and more insistent, as did the rustle of envelopes.
1: After all, things were getting better. I got promoted at work. I even managed to pay down the worst of the credit cards. Another two months and it would have been paid off entirely.
0: She threw a ripped open envelope across the table.
1: Then that bill came. A dozen charges for hundreds of dollars each. We're almost maxed out again.
0: I sat down across from her. No getting past this, either. I didn't touch the envelope. I knew what the charges were.
1: To the industrial machine shop, to Hammond's Electronics, to a bunch of other stupid equipment suppliers. You decided to throw our future away into that pile of junk in the basement. 10 years we've been married, Morris, and you've gotten stupider every year. I used to think you were smart.
0: She jammed her cigarette down in a cut-glass-engraved bowl. It was an award I'd won years before as most innovative at a convention for new inventors and entrepreneurs. Now it was Penny's favorite ashtray. You have to spend money to make money, Penny. And I'm on the verge, really, this time. It's going to be huge.
1: But that's not why I'm thinking about leaving you.
0: She interrupted, all calm. She rose and went to the counter, took down a glass and a bottle of gin one step up from industrial solvent. I had to turn around in my chair to keep my eyes on her. I love Penny, but I don't like turning my back on her.
1: We can always declare bankruptcy, so who cares if our credit gets ruined for seven years and we lose this shithole fixer-upper you never bothered to fix up? Except for your precious basement.
0: She dug into the freezer for a couple of ice cubes, swirled them in her drink.
1: Your basement,
0: she spat,
1: with your lock on the door.
0: The lock was an old point of contention, and my response was as well-worn as the path I took each day down the steps to my machine. The lock is for your own safety. Some of my experiments are dangerous, and if you came down there without the proper protection, you might... The lock, she said, loud enough to cut me off. I tried to remember the last time Penny had let me finish a sentence. Maybe five years before... Maybe seven?
1: The lock is sort of why I'm thinking about leaving you.
0: She stalked toward me, drink in hand, and I stood up, edging around the table to the far side, closer to the basement door. I wanted to keep the table between us.
1: I know you're down there in that basement all day while I'm at work. I know because the house smells like burning rubber and hot solder every night. And you say you have so much work to do on your machine that you scamper down there after dinner every night too. Lock your door and work on the mystery machine, right, Morris? The one that's going to change everything and make us rich, right? That machine?
0: Her right eye was twitching the way it did when she got furious.
1: But last night, when I got this credit card bill, I was so pissed that I started banging on your door. And when I tried the door, it was unlocked. Somebody forgot his safety measures, huh, Morris? So I went down there, but you were nowhere to be seen. What do you do? Crawl out the window? Too chicken shit to leave by the front door?
0: She slammed her glass down on the table.
1: And you think I haven't noticed you sneaking in late sometimes these past few months? You think I'm stupid, Morris? Uh,
0: No, I, I... How to explain that? Sometimes I didn't make it back to the basement in time for transition, so I landed a few blocks from home and had to walk back. I'd done it for a long time without detection, but I'd become sloppy recently. I could see that now. I thought, for the millionth time, about telling Penny the truth about the machine. But I couldn't. Not yet. Because she'd want to go with me, and then she'd see, and she'd know, the same way she'd always knew when I'd been masturbating or had too many drinks. That sixth sense for my shame. And if she found out about the other... So,
1: let me tell you why I'm thinking about leaving you, Morris.
0: Her eyes were bright and focused her voice low and serious.
1: I'm going to leave you, because I think...
0: I kicked the chair aside, wrenched open the basement door, slipped inside, pulled the door closed after me, and shot the bolt. I could barely hear Penny shouting on the other side. The basement was impressively soundproofed. I'd made a little money early on from selling a patent for a device that improved energy efficiency in certain coolant systems, enough to buy this house and make a fine workshop before the money ran out. I'd always assumed there'd be more patents, more inventions, money streaming in forever. But then I discovered the principle behind the machine, and my every dollar, thought, and hour since then had gone into its development. A time machine. Every basement tinkerer's impossible dream, but I'd done it. It just didn't work the way I'd expected. And I wasn't using it the way I'd expected either. I switched on the lights and went down the stairs to my workshop, past the scarred wooden workbenches festooned with clamps, past the walls hung with fine tools, to the far end of the long room, which was dominated by the machine and piles of parts that had once been part of the machine, and other parts that I was going to try adding to the machine in time. It wasn't like H.G. Wells's time machine in more ways than one, to my dismay. This was no vehicle. There was no seat, no steering wheel, nothing like that. It was as unimpressive as a breaker box, its only face a vast array of switches, cryptically marked in a way that only made sense to me, with wires and conduits snaking back to a complex array of equipment that filled the back wall. There were lots of dummy switches and false circuits meant to confuse anyone who stumbled upon the machine, Not that I was in much danger of industrial espionage. I was nobody. I hadn't filed for a patent in years. For the sake of secrecy, I'd refrained from producing a dozen ancillary inventions discovered during my work on the machine, some of which might have made me rich. The time machine would make me much more than merely rich, though. Once I perfected the machine, it would raise me as high as any man had ever been. I looked forward to seeing Penny's face then. But I didn't have the resources of a big lab or a staff, the budget of a government agency, so it was slow work. I could have sought help, but that would have meant giving up control of the machine, and I couldn't do that. I knew too many inventors who'd had their greatest creations stolen by unscrupulous companies, and this was simply too important. That was something Penny would never understand. She didn't have the long-term vision I did. But the machine. I pressed my hand against the cool metal. Perfection eluded me. In truth, even improvements eluded me. The machine did as much as it ever had, exactly as it had since I first got it working, all those years before, no matter how I adjusted it, no matter how much money I spent on new equipment or embellishments. Still, I kept trying. I'd made some alterations to the machine this morning, so maybe, maybe... I flipped the only switch that mattered. I regret to say I did not fall down a tunnel of phantasmagoric lights with the sound of ticking clocks as accompaniment, and no calendar pages flew past my face. The transition is not cinematic. The machine hums, everything lurches, I blink, or darkness engulfs me or the environment briefly shifts to one that my senses cannot interpret, have never been sure. And then I am in the basement still, but it is all dust now, an unused basement in an empty house. Afternoon light comes in the high windows, which in the future, my future, are painted black. And it is the same light every time, no matter what time of day I activate the machine on my end. My heart sank a little, I'd hoped, this time, with these changes, that I'd go somewhere else, some-when else. But I was here, and now, again. Might as well get on with it then. Sometimes I get nosebleed, I still don't know why, but when I rubbed my hand against my nostrils this time, it came away clean. I went up the steps, through an empty kitchen, and out the back door into an overgrown, fenced-in yard. It was a beautiful spring day, full of promise, but they were the same old promises. I didn't worry about meeting anyone. I'd been this way often enough to know which pathways were safe. The first couple of times had been disorienting, but once I'd figured out when I was, I'd quickly taken the next logical step to find out where Penny was. All it took was calling her parents from a payphone. My voice hadn't changed that much, and they couldn't tell me from the future, from me, from their present. They'd gladly told me that Penny had gone for a walk and said she was going to the park. And that's where I'd found her, and kept on finding her, every time I used the machine. I set off for the park, as always. I didn't worry about meeting myself. My 17-year-old counterpart was off visiting relatives 100 miles away. I walked briskly just five or six blocks through the rundown residential neighborhood that was half-gentrified by the time Penny and I moved in. The park was much the same in the past and future, just a patch of green bordered by bushes, a few benches on the grass. I stood by the bushes, where I always did, and watched my Penny, my pretty Penny, at 17, sitting on the bench with a book open in her lap. Her head was bowed, a wisp of hair pulling free from the back of her head, to sway in the breeze. Not everything was the same every time I came back, and that had been my first sad hint that I'd discovered Sterling Shinarian time travel instead of Wellseen time travel. Oh, on the macro level, everything was identical each time. The cars that passed by on the street, the people strolling past, Penny on the bench, but little things shifted. The flies buzzing around me were erratic, the breezes that blew differed a little each time, and the fat, fluffy clouds overhead dissolved and drifted differently each time I came to the past. If I were truly traveling into my own past, those tiny details would have been the same every time, as unchanged as any other component of history. But this was not truly my past. At least, not in any way that touched my future. No matter what I did here, the future I returned to would be unaltered, connected to a past I'd never visited, a past I'd only lived through, as anyone did. I approached the bench from behind. Penny, I said, letting her hear my voice before she saw me, because I'd learned that that was the easiest way.
1: Morris? I thought you were going-
0: She trailed off as I stepped around the bench, into her vision, close enough to see that I was no seventeen-year-old. I wasn't too different, a little more weight around the midsection, a few more lines on my face, but I was still recognizably me. Pennywhistle, I said. It was an endearment I'd used back then, and saying it seemed to make what came next easier, at least for her. Yeah, it's me. I came back from the future. I already had the wedding photo in my hand. And before she could object or express disbelief i held the photo out and she took it as she nearly always did penny stared at the photo herself in a white fantasia of a gown that no one had known was second hand myself as dashing as i'd ever been in a rented tuxedo i sat on the bench at the end away from her plenty of space between us sometimes she spooked and ran away but not this time Whether she ran or not seemed to depend on how close I came to her physically in these first moments. It was, it's going to be a beautiful wedding. No need to mention her drunk uncle vomiting behind the cake table. This moment needed to be magical. You were, you will be radiant. She looked up, her eyes narrowed, a look I would come to know well in later years.
1: I don't believe- Look on the
0: back of the picture, I said. And with a suspicious glare, she turned the photo over and gasped. Seeing the date on the photo, written in blue ink in her own spidery handwriting, never failed to convince her. She'd run away a dozen times before I figured out that approach.
1: Morris, it's really you?
0: Penny, I built a time machine. It took me years of work, but I did it, and now I'm back. I spread my hands. I want to tell you some things. I took a slip of paper from my pocket. These are the names of some companies I want you to buy stock in. You don't have to tell Morris you're doing it. Just use the money you get for graduation. It won't take much, and these will make you a lot of money. Your uncle can tell you how to go about buying shares. There are going to be some hard times ahead for you and Morris. You and me. And the money you make from this will help. Just... Don't stop believing in me. I will accomplish great things. I smiled as reassuringly as possible. I'm here, aren't I? She did believe me now. And when she took the paper, she touched my cheek with her other hand.
1: I've never doubted you Morris. I always knew you were a genius, but won't this change things? Change the past? I mean the future. Isn't it dangerous, you coming here and giving me this information?
0: I didn't laugh. It would have sounded too bitter. If I'd discovered Wellesian time travel with time as one uniform line, I'd be in danger of changing my own future by meddling with the past. (laughs) Danger. I'd be in the wonderful position of being able to alter my own miserable timeline. But this was sterling shenarian time travel instead. The past was another country, time a garden of infinitely forking paths. I could change this path, but when I returned home, my world would always be the same. Maybe someday that would change, if I could fix the machine, but for now I did what I could, and took the comfort it gave me, and seized what happiness I could. No danger, I said. I've worked everything out, checked all the calculations. It'll all be fine, don't worry. And be patient. There will be rough times ahead, even with the extra money. But believe in me, and someday things will be wonderful. I put my hand on her knee. This part could go either way. I knew it was whim for her, and sometimes she patted my hand and thanked me and kissed my cheek, and that was all. But this time, like she did about half the time, she leaned in, and I turned my head to hers, and we kissed. I smelled her, her hair, her skin, the intrinsic scent of her. Even when I slept beside Penny in the future, this smell was lost to me, obscured by the cigarettes she smoked. We kissed and her mouth held no taste of ashes. Tears welled up in my eyes, but I didn't cry. Sometimes I did, but not this time.
1: We could go to our place,
0: Penny said and there was a mischievous glint in her eyes, a delicious sense of her own naughtiness, and I didn't say no. I would never say no. This was my penny, after all, even if only a long time ago and in a slightly different world. She led me just a few blocks to another empty house where we'd sometimes slipped away as teenagers for precious time alone. We went through a broken window to an interior room where we had candles, a scrounged mattress, and a bottle of vodka hidden under a loose floorboard. Our teenaged earthly paradise. Morris. She murmured.
1: It's not wrong since it's you. I know it.
0: And she pulled me down with her to the mattress. Beneath the peeling wallpaper in an abandoned house in a past not quite my own, I made love again to my penny, as I had so many times before. After, later, when I'd held her and smelled her hair and whispered promises to her about how good her life would be, I said I had to go. The machine will be calling me back soon. She propped herself up on one elbow, disarrayed and unselfconscious, and said,
1: I don't think I'll tell you the the young you, my you about this. He might not believe me, and anyway, it'll make a nicer surprise when he gets the time machine working.
0: I nodded. On the occasions when we made love, Penny from the past usually said something similar. It appealed to her love for secrets. I kissed her goodbye and set out walking in the evening toward the empty basement I would someday make my lab. Maybe I'd given this Penny and that Morris A chance at a better life. I tried. Each time I tried. I couldn't kill Hitler in his cradle, couldn't witness the crucifixion, couldn't even corner the tulip market in the Netherlands in the 17th century. But I did what I could. I'd never know if I succeeded. Once I'd visited one iteration of the past, it seemed closed to me forever, and I never returned to the same place twice. I didn't know if there were an infinite number of possible pasts to visit or not. Maybe someday I'd find out. And honestly, whether this Penny and that Morris had a better life or not, at least I'd tasted remembered sweetness and learned once again that my nostalgia was not misplaced. Penny really was the great love of my life. Just not the great love of my present. I made it back to the basement in time and when I shifted with an inner lurch back to my own time, I sat for a while, listening to the ticking clock hung over my workbench. Finally, when it was late enough that I thought Penny would be asleep, late enough to privately shower the smell of the younger Penny off myself, I went upstairs. Penny still sat at the kitchen table, smoking perhaps her 20th cigarette of the night. She exhaled a stream of smoke and said, as if our earlier argument had never been interrupted, as if I'd never fled.
1: I'm thinking about leaving you, Morris, because I think you're cheating on me.
0: And truly, what answer could I give to that? with me, the best is yet to be," said Robert Browning. Bittersweet story. Hope you enjoyed. Story feedback a few weeks ago for a story we ran called Varmints by Steve Lowe, which pitted a bassoon-playing meteorologist against a contingent of crafty raccoons. People loved this one. D. Braun said, When I heard this, I knew I had to encourage everyone on Facebook to subscribe. What did it was the line, the coons flock to my bassoon. My sister is a professional musician who specializes in the bassoon. I can't imagine anyone who would appreciate this story more. Damp Obsession said, Okay, I totally loved this one. Steve Lowe's dark and livid writing style, the awesome narration, and the hilarious premise all mixed together turned into a symphony slathered in awesome sauce. Let's hope it doesn't drip on the carpet. I laughed, I cried. Well, I didn't really cry, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. I couldn't help but reminisce back to my old marching band days. He's right about the tuba, you know. They are the bottom of the pecking order, except for maybe the clarinets. Yeah, actually, I was really surprised myself to see how many band geeks we have out there in Drabbleville listening to the show. People were mad representing their instruments in the forums. Uh, Speaking of geeks out there in Drabbleville, this week's kick-ass donor of the week is... Lauren Boninfont. Lauren says her husband often calls her a geek or a nerd, depending on his mood. So, she might just happen to be reading H.P. Lovecraft and listening to Death by Black Hole by Neil deGrasse Tyson at the same time. Still, he wants to name their next two basset hounds Cthulhu and Seraphim, so he may just have a little geek in him after all. It's good when two geeks find each other. Otherwise, time-traveling technology and booze are bound to become isolating factors. Thanks, Lauren. We appreciate the support. And it's time to busk! You at home, or wherever you are right now, you can be as awesome as Lauren, too. We're really trying to establish a good, solid base of automatic $5 a month subscribers so we can do more financial forecasting throughout the year. You can subscribe in like two clicks by going to Drabblecast.org and clicking the big five bucks a month button. We're going to have some cool subscriber incentives coming up soon, so you'll want to get on that too. Or you can just donate once, any amount. You'll find that option off our website as well. We're hoping to up our author pay rate soon, making us more attractive to more writers out there. Take out your girlfriend to Arby's this Valentine's Day. Use the money you save to support the Drabblecast. Arby's is awesome. It's a win-win. Next order of business, this week's TwitFic contest winner, Week to week, we run an ongoing contest to see who can write the best 100-character story, or twobble as we call them around these parts. The editors pick their fave, and we publish it in our Twitter feed so that everyone following the Drabblecast can enjoy. You can get in on the action by hopping in the TwitFix section of our discussion forums, linked off drabblecast.org. So anyways, this week's winner, lovable, huggable, friendly forum fella Swamp, with this delightful nugget of fiction. The Saints won. Brad regretted his bet with the voodoo priest. He screamed in pain as monkeys began to fly out of his butt. Poor Brad. But still, a butt is no place for monkeys anyways, especially the winged variety. But go Saints! Twat that out on Twitter earlier this week. Follow us there if you do Twitter and you can catch the winner a few days early every week. Finally, before we wrap this up, special thanks to this week's episode artist, Kent, aka Broken Cyborg. Kent lives in Seattle and works as a web designer. His passions include screaming along desert highways on his loud, fast, black motorcycle until the oil and wind blown road grime coat his leather and skin, making him nearly indistinguishable from the roaring two wheeled machine slave beneath his legs, and also long walks on the beach. His side projects exist at www.broke.encyb.org. Yikes. That's B R O org. Hope you got that. It's in our show notes. So that's our show this week. If you know anyone else who would enjoy, copy and share. Our show is produced under a Creative Commons Attribution Non Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it or sell it, but distribute it freely. Spread the good news, Drabblevangelize, blog about us, write us a review on iTunes, Podcast Alley, Podcast Pickle, Ancient Scroll, wherever you think it'll get read. Break into the mayor and the sheriff's house one night and plant freshly throbbing Drabblecast pods next to their slumbering heads. We'll have truckloads of the show going around the country by early March. And we'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to listen to your uncle. Go buy Arby's stock.